And so our shtick has always been going to a limited license state, ideally win in a graded application process where they weed out the people that uh, maybe shouldn't be in the business or don't have the experience to be in the business and get a little more sophisticated operator in here to basically make sure there's no black market coming in the state or nobody's doing anything nefarious. And if you have a limited license market too, which is the states we focus on, there's a value to the license. And so you don't want to do anything dumb to lose the millions of dollars of the value of that license to get your license pulled or something like that. And so by having a limited number one, it allows people to stay in business. I'm a free market guy, but I look at this much like alcohol, where you don't want 10 distributors of Bud Light in a specific market. So it's very similar to that. So we see that across the states and every one of these states we've gone to is a limited license market. So that's really our shtick. You're listening to To Be Blunt, the podcast for cannabis marketers, where your host Shada Taravi and her guests are trailblazing the path to marketing, educating, and professionalizing cannabis. Light one up and listen up. Here's your host, Shada Taravi. Hello, and welcome back to the To Be Blunt podcast. I'm your host, Shada Tarabi, cannabis business owner and brand marketer. I am super excited to have you here and appreciate you pressing play on the episode today. Now, I feel like I'm becoming a broken record saying, where did the time go? But here we are yet again. We are almost in September. But I'm mentioning the time because as I updated you guys last episode, which if you're new here, then this is new information, but just a quick refresher for everybody. Obviously, summer is historically a time when business slows down. And as such, a lot of movement, especially when it comes to legislation and regulation, takes a backseat. But now that we are officially back to school, things are going to be picking up. Remember, for my Texas folks, September is the time and hearing for the lawsuit against the state of Texas's Department of State Health Services. And the lawsuit was filed by Hometown Hero, which is a big hemp operator here in the state. And they basically sued Texas after Dishes made an update to the rules about Delta 8. Reminder, this is not is Delta 8 good or bad or right or wrong. It's did the state have the right to update their rules? And so we as an industry are waiting to see how that particular hearing plays out. Of course, it will have major repercussions either way, and it is something I'm tracking closely. But with that said, there are a lot of other things in flux that I'll be paying attention to. Specifically, we also have the 2018 Farm Bill, which is up for amendment at the end of this year, which means the Department of Agriculture is working on the 2023 Farm Bill. However, there's probably going to be an extension because what I've been hearing is that it is getting delayed. I'll also take this opportunity to highlight that the Farm Bill encompasses far more than just hemp. But as you can imagine, it is a major piece of legislation that has dictated and opened the floodgates, not just for CBD, but of course, the whole hemp-derived market. As you guys know, advocacy is super important to me, and I am extremely involved here at a local Texas level. But through my organization, the Texas Hemp Coalition, for which I'm the president of, gives me a platform and opportunity to be involved and advocate on a federal level as well. And I feel like in our industry, there's always something going on. There's always a lawsuit or a memo or an update or something that's coming down the pipeline by a federal organization. And I feel like I sleep with one eye open, but at the same time, nothing shocks me or surprises me. And so my goal is to always be professional and educated and approach these conversations especially with these policymakers, with an open mind to make some change, while also acknowledging that it is very much two steps forward, one step backwards, and a hop to the side. So with that said, my next opportunity is going to be in a couple of weeks. I will be heading to D.C. with our organization's executive director because the Texas Hemp Coalition is a major supporter of the U.S. Hemp Roundtable. They are the leading national organization who does hemp advocacy, but we're a sister organization and obviously represent Texas. And so we 
are going up to join them to participate in their National Lobby Day meeting. We'll be talking to representatives, senators, and we will be fortunate to have meetings with the Department of Agriculture, who, by the way, is who wrote the Farm Bill. So I'm looking forward to being in the room, sitting across the table from policymakers and people who very much have the influence to dictate as well as rightfully regulate the future of this industry. And I do not take these opportunities lightly. And again, I really, truly appreciate the opportunity to have a seat at the table. Definitely more to come as I go to D.C. and I will absolutely share what we discuss once I get back. I also want to add and put something on your radar for anyone who is interested, but especially Texas operators. The Texas Hemp Coalition is having our second annual Texas Hemp Summit at Texas A&M in December on December 8th and 9th. We're just in the beginning stages of pulling together speakers and sponsors, but if you're interested, please bookmark that on your calendar, and if you want to be involved, reach out to me directly and check out texashempcoalition.org for more information. I have to give a big shout out to A&M. They've been a wonderful supporter of the coalition. They've been a wonderful advocate for hemp. They've opened their doors to our organization as well as been a great champion of hemp curriculum specifically for their students and representing a major university system in the state of Texas. Now, before I get into some quick news updates, I want to invite you to subscribe and leave some feedback, hopefully positive, for the podcast. I can't stress it enough that I love connecting with you. Yes, you. Not y'all. I'm speaking to you as an individual. I'm truly grateful for everyone who tunes in, but I recognize that this is usually one to one. There's one person on the other end of these speakers, headphones, or car stereo listening to these words on the other end. And I sincerely and genuinely want to meet as many of you as I can. I want to hear your story and I want to connect with you. So I really, truly appreciate and encourage you to find me on social media. You can find me at the Shaded Tarabi or the podcast at To Be Blunt Pod. Send me an email. Leave me a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and let's connect. And by the way, if you're not subscribed to my website, tobebluntpod.com, that is where episodes get released first, and you will be notified if you subscribe. And in addition to that, I also share long-form content there. So again, I really appreciate you pressing play on this episode today, but I encourage you to connect and reach out. Let's have a conversation, you and me. So into some news. Last week, Twilio cut their service to cannabis industry operators. They, if you don't know, are one of the nation's largest communication service providers, specifically offering text message marketing. And they decided to restrict not only marijuana businesses, but CBD and accessory product companies as well. This affects not only the United States, but also Canada. And this is regardless of the federal or state legality. Now, it's not clear why Twilio made this decision, but it is a huge blow to operators who are leveraging their platform. I definitely know some cannabis brands use SMS marketing because I'm the recipient of some of their texts. But as a brand myself, we've explored SMS marketing and it's hit or miss depending on who offers it and what the capabilities are. When we've tried to implement it, we were doing so based off of our email marketing platform. So we use Clavio for email marketing. And while they are touted as super cannabis friendly for email marketing, even though they also offer SMS marketing, they do not allow customers like us to leverage their SMS platform. So when I saw this news from Twilio, it didn't shock me, but it was just like, oh, that's unfortunate. And what a setback. So I'm curious to learn from you guys if you as a brand or operator use SMS marketing and how effective it's been for you and if you use Twilio and what the repercussions of this might be for you and your brand. Kind of in the same vein, another piece of news which I did mention last week was that MasterCard issued a hardline demand that banks and payment processors immediately halt marijuana transactions involving its debit card. However, now many are concerned that other global financial giants like Visa are going to follow suit. Unfortunately, actions like this hurt the regulated side of the industry and force businesses into cash. Unfortunately, actions like this hurt the industry by forcing businesses into cash-heavy operations and further strengthen competition from the illicit market. 
This is, of course, an ongoing concern. And with no movement for safe banking, we're left dealing with the repercussions and picking up the pieces. And the final update I'll share, which is just an FYI. Did you know the Food and Wine Spirits Wholesalers of America have begun reaching out to Congress about cannabis? Specifically, they want to connect on the regulation of hemp and CBD as well as hemp-derived THC products. Look, it's no secret that all eyes are on cannabis, tobacco, pharmaceuticals, alcohol, but it is certainly a race to who is going to get the authority to regulate, and the Wine and Spirits Wholesalers of America believe that they are the right people for the job. And so they're reaching out to Congress stating that they believe it would be appropriate for the Alcohol and Tobacco Tax and Trade Bureau to oversee the regulatory structure for federal cannabis regulation. Of course you do. And I'm just curious, who do you think should regulate it? And is it something that should come from the industry internally? Is this an organization that already exists? Will we have to make up something? Or is it going to be another industry group that brings cannabis into their framework, i.e. like this tobacco tax and trade bureau? So I'm just ultimately left wondering what the repercussions are going to be. And obviously more to come. I think the whole conversation around federal legalization is shifting. Obviously, for many reasons, we now have hemp derived. A lot of updates were shared last week, specifically around urging Congress to make decisions to regulate CBD, hemp derived THC, etc. Again, like I said in the beginning of this episode, there is a lot on pause because it was summer. So we'll start to see how fast and quickly things move. And I think going to DC in a couple of weeks is going to be really telling on how much of a priority all of this is for Washington. Certainly lots to think and consider this week, so please reach out with any thoughts, questions, or follow-ups. And now let me introduce today's guest. I'm joined by John Mueller. He is the co-founder and CEO of Greenlight. They are a vertically integrated multi-state operator with three in-house brands. They have over 180,000 square feet of cultivation and manufacturing and more than 550 employees through John's expertise in scaling businesses. Because of this, Greenlight is tracking over $200 million in annualized revenue and his position to have 40 dispensaries open by Q1 of 2024 is on track. Not only am I fascinated by John's goal to reach 40 plus dispensaries, what was more intriguing was the locations in the states in which he's operating his business. He's headquartered in Missouri with dispensaries across the state, as well as locations in South Dakota, West Virginia, Illinois, and hopefully soon to come Arkansas. So naturally, you can assume my curiosity wanted to understand what it takes to grow a brand to hit a milestone like achieving 40 locations, but also what he's learned from these different states and acquiring licensing through their unique programs. Some of his locations are medical and some are adult use. So we discuss the differences and similarities there, as well as what it takes to grow a brand and market to your target consumer, especially when your target consumer exists in multiple states. John brings a lot of insight from his years of entrepreneurship, scaling Greenlight, and empowering his team. So please join me by lighting one up, and let's welcome John to the show. Thank you for having me on. John Mueller, I'm the CEO of, of Greenlight. We are now operating uh, 28 dispensaries, about to be 29 next week, and a uh, little over uh, 200,000 square feet of cultivation manufacturing operating in five states today, and uh, has have a sixth state that's coming on board here. In the next two months, waiting on regulatory approval and that stuff. But we have uh, 580 employees that work at Greenlight uh, today. So very fortunate to have a a big team. So I, I get to leave the office every now and again. And now that we've had a team built up underneath us, but uh, basically got our, our start. Have, have been a troubled asset workout guy in, in basically private equity since the day we got out of college. So I've never signed the, the back of a payroll check, only the fronts and completely unemployable. And we've done a whole bunch of trouble asset deals in construction and tech and cattle feedlots in China. And we do road construction over in the Ukraine before they went to war and everywhere else in uh, Brazil and everywhere else in between. But so ne never been scared to get in any business and, and saw a unique opportunity. We, we did a small investment in California in a uh, medical collective through uh, my, uh, my brother and partner's father-in-law at the time. And and didn't want to get enter California with the the mess out there, and looked at Colorado, and then Nevada came up with the license application, limited license state. We wrote some great applications. I won six different licenses out there. Ended up building out a, a nice 
300,000 square foot grow, 19,000 square foot dispensary, another dispensary. Simultaneously, we did end up going to uh, Salinas Valley, California and opened 270,000 square feet there two, two and a half, three years later, I guess it was. We sold that to Cureleaf, the largest operator in our industry and took a nice check and got to move back to the Midwest. We we're born and raised in St. Louis and now both live in Kansas City where Greenlight is headquartered. And it allowed us to come back here after after selling those assets off and start building Greenline. We really got rolling in, in late 2019 after that sale went through. And so we built up the company uh, since then and, and have started the process moving forward of continuing to expand and really trouble, troubling waters for the cannabis industry. So we've been fortunate to stay frugal and focused on, on earnings and building the business. That is a remarkable introduction. Just the scale that you have achieved in this industry, it's no short feat. I know that it's taken a lot of effort and energy as well as trial and error. Like you've just alluded, the industry is not for the faint of heart. And I'm sure every time you've gone after a license or opened up a facility or opened up a dispensary, it's been a continuous learning involvement because every state is different. Every city is different. Surely there's a lot of variance between consumers and their preferences. I guess the best place to start would be you are, I'm just looking at some of the bio stuff that was provided, some of the states you're operating in out of the ones that you mentioned, I think California, Nevada, they're obviously a little bit more established states when it comes to the cannabis industry and just in terms of adoption and awareness. But you mentioned you're in the Midwest where the brand Greenlight is now headquartered, but you're also in Arkansas, West Virginia, Illinois, of course, is a little bit more in that middle tier where I would say it's an established market, but it still is a up and coming market to some extent, um, and South Dakota. And so I would just love to understand across all those markets, what comes to mind as being some of the similarities maybe of how you've approached going after some of the licensing, as well as maybe some of the differences when it comes to actually implementing your business and getting it up and running in terms of certain regulations or blocked roads, so to speak, and, and just some of the challenges that you've had to navigate through. So what is different about some of these different states? What's been the easy consistency and as well as what's been maybe some of the harder parts that you've had to navigate through just all the different states you're operating in? Yeah, I think as you look at how we found it, uh, the company, we like winning licenses instead of buying them. So if you look at an Arizona, you can go down and 10 million bucks to go buy a license down there and get up and operating. We like to go into like a state of Missouri. We're the largest operator here in the state of Missouri. I got 15 dispensaries spread across the state and 150,000 square feet of our 200,000 square feet to grow in manufacturing. And, and we're a big dominant player here. We were a part of that application process, love, uh, love winning it, but really built our brand starting here in, in Missouri. And, and, and I go around talking about the, the difference in our regulatory environment here versus Arkansas, let's say, where we now have three stores. We won one initially and then rebranded two, two stores down there. So we've got three stores that are operating in the state of Arkansas, where Arkansas is not near as friendly and doesn't want to see the industry pop up and be profitable in that. So it's a little bit harder from a, a regulatory standpoint. Obviously, if you look at every state, pretty much though, 90 plus percent of the regulations, everybody has seed to sale tracking, everybody tags a plant and sells that plant to uh, a certain person down the road. And all that kind of stuff is generally the same. The number of cameras, et cetera, changes a little bit, but generally it's all pretty close to the same because at the end of the day, we're growing a plant, we're selling something in a jar or a vape pen or something along those lines. So it's pretty normal, but it's really like the regulatory body, do they want you to be in business? Do they not want you to be in business? How restricting do they want to be as you're going through it? So in the state of Missouri, I, I think they've done a nice job. They reach out, they work with the industry. Uh, obviously, the, the other difference is these constitutional amendments versus legislative deals where in the state of Missouri, we, the medical program, constitutional amendment, it's uh, never getting overturned, even though we got a very heavy conservative majority in our capital. Here in Missouri, it's really tough to, you're not amending a constitutional amendment. So these ballot initiative states, are, are really critical to this whole process and they can't really touch that. So you write in that language. And as we went to adult use, you write in the language of all the things you don't want them to mess with. And so it, it allows you to, to market. Obviously we still control and make sure we keep kids out of there and minors and all these other stuff that are obviously absolutely critical to the entire industry. But in a constitutional state is really the difference versus a legislative state. So if you look at a regulatory body, 
from one where you write a ballot initiative and all of us get around the table and say, hey, we don't want them to touch this or we don't want them to, we want to add drive-throughs or we don't or whatever the case is. If you can put that in the constitutional amendment and stay in that lane, uh, it's a lot easier than going into a legislative body and lobbying for people to tweak the business to just basically help you uh, stay in business with our crazy tax rates and things like that. So I really see Missouri as a gold standard looking out. We've got new new regulators in there today than we had before. Uh, they have a little different approach, but at the end of the day, they want to protect the consumer, make sure we're tested for the 54 different things we're tested for and keep it out of hands of children and obviously make sure none of the DUIs and things like that are are transpiring, but they, they also don't want to put you out of business. And, and it's a little different model depending on each regulatory body. But as we look at our team, most of the regulations and how we operate the stores are almost identical. And so our shtick has always been going to a limited license state, ideally win in a graded application process where they weed out the people that uh, maybe shouldn't be in the business or don't have the experience to be in the business and get a little more sophisticated operator in here to, to basically make sure there's no black market coming in the state or nobody's doing anything nefarious. And if you have a limited license, Market too, which is the states we focus on, there's a value to the license. And so you don't want to do anything dumb to lose the millions of dollars of the value of that license. They get your license pulled or something like that. And uh, so um, by having a limited number one, it allows people to stay in business. I'm a free market guy, but I look at this uh, much like alcohol where you you don't want 10 distributors of Bud Light in a, in a specific market. So it's very similar to that. So we see that across the states and every one of these states we've gone to is a limited license market. So that's really our shtick is going to markets. And we talked about the application process in Texas, the application process, which is actually announcing tomorrow in the great state of Alabama. Florida is going to be later this year. Those are all uh, big states that uh, are expanding their programs. And we want to be involved in any of those limited licenses. On these licenses in these states, I, again, I wish I knew every state as well as I could, but obviously it's hard because there's so many different programs and nuances and details. Are all the licenses you own adult use rec or are some medical? Were you medical and then transitioned them into rec through different stages of the licensing process, of course? Just what is that kind of, I guess breakdown look like in terms of medical and rec from your portfolio? And are there any differences from your experience? Like, Has the licensing been different from medical to rec? I know bringing up Texas, obviously, our state, not only is it limited licensure, it's also vertical integration required. And so those are also hurdles I see sometimes that are not as achievable or attainable for everybody who thinks that they're going to be able to grow legal pot. And especially being in Texas, I have a lot of peers who I think over over eagerly applied for this medical license. I'm like, you own three CBD stores. You, 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 like, you don't have any infrastructure. You don't have any money in the bank funds. What is the state of Texas actually going to look at you and say, you know what, we're going to give you the license to open up medical, knowing that you have to have infrastructure. There has to be some sort of professionality to it. They're looking for people who can, I think, obviously show that it's been done well before. So I think there's sometimes this tension as well of maybe... It's presumptuous to assume, but I'm assuming some of these states that you're not like home based in, they look at you as an outsider, but they welcome that because you have the experience and the track record saying, hey, we've done this well in blah, blah, blah state. Now you can trust us here versus I think sometimes there's tension around, is the state going to reward locals or are they going to allow multi-state operators? I would put you in a category of a multi-state operator having multi-state operations. And so hopefully that question comment makes sense just around your portfolio of medical to adult use split. And if there's any pros or cons to going after those licenses with the, the reputation that you have when you're going after the licenses. Yeah. So, so I think if you look at one where, you know, so Missouri, Illinois, and we're re-entering Nevada here this next month, but the, those, those are all our rec states. Uh, obviously Missouri went medical, we won the medical license. And then magically one day on February 3rd, they switched to adult use and the line started. As I tell everybody in, in any of these medical states, you, you're, you're not going to make any, any money at those. You're waiting for a longer term building a footprint, et cetera, with our tax rates and 280E and how we're taxed as an organization. You're not going to end up paying, making these windfalls that a lot of people, as they build these pro formas of how much 
stuff they're going to grow or sell or whatever. They don't make a lot of sense to me as a, as just a common business person. But so really that our, our split is that, but going into Texas, if we're lucky enough to win one of those licenses down there, we have some local partners in there too. We strategically moved out to uh, West Texas because we felt like more people would be operating and it's an underserved market. Absolutely. It makes for great application. Obviously, we show that we've done this before and can do this before. So it's always a little tweak of depending on how the regs are written too. Like we partner with people in, in different states. As, as an example, in Alabama, we partner with Alabama State University, one of the historically black colleges. And basically revitalizing one of their old boarding schools to put wow. a cultivation there. And really, you look at how do you impact the community? How do you partner with people that the state of Alabama, in this example, would want to have there? But they also want to know that the, the obviously the educators have not built up a cannabis business. So they always need a, a group uh, like us, whether it's us or any of the other MSOs or a smaller operator that's stretching their legs to go somewhere else. Everybody, Sam Walton and us all, we all started with one store and it just depends on the time frame and, and how well you do at building those. So I think as we go into new markets, we have good local partners, depending on where you're going. And then you build out your business from there and they try and keep the residency requirements in there. A lot of those in Missouri was struck down because constitutionally, they can't keep out a Illinois person from owning a business in the state of Missouri. So it's just depending on if you constitutionally want to argue that those residency requirement deals are, are slowly going away, but you still want to partner and in, in show in your application that you want what you're doing, which uh, we're comfortable with that side of the equation, then who your local partner is and how do you impact the community so you can get the mayor's support behind you or whoever you need to support your business. And so that's how we looked at And then going in South Dakota, we thought uh, adult use would pass uh, last time as it did the time before. So that that state at some point will go to uh, adult use from uh, the limited medical program it has today. West Virginia, we feel the same way. And Arkansas, unfortunately, got beat very badly. Lost by 12 points in the last election after spending uh, $13, $14 million. So that, that one's probably not coming up for a while, but uh, that's just part of the equation is you you basically get in there and you try and serve that medical community. We, we are very proud of the number of medical patients. We push through our system. We've sponsored over 40,000 medical cards and, and those are all loyal uh, consumers today. And we're, we're a big believer in the medical aspects of the business. But at the end of the day, to, to really expedite that volume when you go from a $200,000 store turns into a $600,000 store when you go from medical to adult use. Hey, To Be Blunt fam, it's Shada here, and I want to give a shout out to my own brand of premium cannabis products, Restart CBD. As a daily user myself, I can personally attest to the effectiveness of our cannabis tinctures, topicals, edibles, and specifically our hemp-derived Delta 9 THC offerings. Whether I'm dealing with stress, body aches, or just need a boost in focus, Restart has a product and cannabinoid that can make me feel better. And our customers have been loving Restart too. Here are some actual quotes from our fans. Juice said, customer service alone deserves a five star. Always super generous when we come here. Also very professional and knowledgeable. Why, thank you very much. We take those five stars and we raise you a high five. And then Laura said, this is the absolute best dispensary I've ever been to. It's run by three sisters who are all equally knowledgeable about every product they sell. Ah, uh, Laura, thank you for seeing us. We really are out here acting like a sponge, just trying to soak up all the information. So if you're looking for quality cannabis products from CBD to Delta 8, and yes, even Delta 9, we got you. Head to restartcbd.com. By the way, we ship nationwide. All our products are federally legal and hemp derived. So use the code 2BTOBE at checkout to get $5 off your first order on me. Our team is dedicated to providing you with the best cannabis products on the market, and we're proud to be sponsors of To Be Blunt. Thanks for supporting my brand and my podcast, and let's all restart our day with Restart CBD. 
you're saying so many things. I'm like, I got to ask them about this. I got to ask them about that. (laughs) One thing about the Alabama comment you made, one remarkable, I think it gives credibility to when you can start to partner with different establishments, especially from an educational perspective. I'm mostly curious how you, using them as the example in this conversation, how do you identify their interest? How do you find partners in these states? Are you and your brother and your executive team just that connected, that networked? Like, how do you put your feelers out? Do you have a really great team in those 500 employees that's just solely dedicated to being boots on the ground in these up and coming markets where there is opportunity? Like what you're saying as far as these points, you want to make sure that you have as part of your application, but like getting those actual partners. I think some of the conversations I've had on the podcast over the years, certainly there's a lot of forewarning because a good partner can be great, but a bad partner can be detrimental. And so doing the vetting process, trying to find people that you can just do good business with and work well together, I think is at everyone's forefront. And so just personally, I'm even like, how how do you even come across them from a university perspective to be like, yes, we want to mutually go into this together? Yeah, no, one, I I, I think as a company, obviously they're raising our image much more than we're raising their image. Alabama State University, my, my guy that was basically working on our Florida application happens to be great friends with the, the, the dean, et cetera, down there. Okay, okay. And so as we're looking at, so it's about connections and putting good people together and then having the opportunity to, to bring them up to see big cultivation center, walk our stores and talk to our employees and get a feel for the culture of our business. Not many people walk away from that and run for the high hills. It's some dumb luck, my brother. That's basically what he does for the side of the equation is goes out and and finds those good strategic partners. Obviously, that's a marquee deal will be national news as one of the first or basically the first university to actually be on the license instead of doing a partnership. Like I'm on the board of directors at St. Louis University cannabis program over there. Great epic program, getting accreditation towards people's degrees. And we're we're very proud of that. And we're going to implement that program, assuming we are successful down in Alabama to start educating. There are people down there that launched that educational program to start real jobs. And we've got a, a lot of people that are basically making careers in the cannabis industry. And instead of having that as a side gig, we try and stay away from as much part-time people as we can. And we want people that can be an assistant manager and then we can move them. Or if they want to move to another state and operate our business, we, we try and keep them in the family. And we're very fortunate from all the other businesses we've done in our life. We've got my head of compliance here has been with the company for 15 years doing something else, but we, we've been able to morph those people. My buyer that buys 10 plus million dollars of product every month has been with me for 12 years on other deals. And you look across the board of that core base and, and my life is much easier today operating our business than it was when we started out in Nevada, not knowing anything that we do, because we've all made uh, plenty of mistakes in, in this industry. And uh, as you mentioned, you kind of age in dog years to in this industry as, as there's all these trials and tribulations. And uh, but it's getting a little easier the, the bigger we get. Yeah, it's obviously a great testament to your leadership, your executive team's leadership but to be able to have the foresight into building the ecosystem that is like, and I guess why universities, there's such an impactful partnership and opportunity as you recognize you'll be the first who will actually have somebody on the license list itself versus a collaboration or partnerships like in Texas University and M University is a really big advocate for hemp. They don't have, I think, an explicit degree, but they have a club that is chill. It's like Cannabis Hemp Industry League. I should know what it is, but It's cool to see universities start to give some credibility to it because to your point too, when you can empower somebody at that level and bring them on board, it's creating that ecosystem of hopefully future employees and then building that out to hopefully future executives that are continuing the the churn of the industry, hopefully in a positive direction, but it is still a little foreign, right? There's some universities that they want to talk about it, but they still want to keep a little bit of a separation. So like St. Louis University is not two and a half years, I guess it's been that they launched that program, but those kids are still growing tomatoes instead of the stuff that you and I do on a regular, I got 48,000 plants growing, right. you know, down the street from me here in like, they're baby they're stepping, growing, they're, growing they're, to, like, they're growing tomatoes. Yeah. They're know, like, so we're cool with it, but not on yeah. property. And so yeah, it's exactly. hopefully seeing this through again is, is going to be like a really cool 
thing to look back, I think, in 10, 15, 20 years to see the yeah, impact sure. that these investments have made. And so it absolutely makes sense, these strategic partnerships and just putting your feelers out and being friendly and also trying to do due diligence on the people that you're bringing in and out of your network. And obviously, again, it's again a testament to the strength and the growth that Greenlight is experiencing. On that note, I want to talk a little bit. You were mentioning sponsoring medical cards. I'm just fascinated from a marketing perspective and maybe a little bit of the conversation can also touch on just medical in general because you mentioned it. I'm very aware just of what I shared before we were recording as well about Texas. Medical, like you are hemorrhaging money, but you are like setting your place in line essentially. But I know that time frame between a state going medical to rec can be in some instances overnight, in some instances it takes years for that state to get on board with a rec program. I personally think Texas is going to be an eight to 10 year play at this point, just with who's currently sure. in our governor and our lieutenant governor position. And so one part of the conversation is the marketing. How does that work out? Are there any laws around? Because it makes sense. Hey, I need customers. I have a medical license. It's easy if I just sponsor you so that you then become a loyal customer of me. Are there any laws or rules or maybe it's not in there and maybe it will be eventually around how you market specifically on the patient side, because I know on the consumer side, there's limitations that brands have. Of course, I'm sure you're aware experiencing this across these different states of gifting or sampling. And I know that they're not the same, but again, when you're getting into how do you market these products using the medical entry point of, hey, I'm going to sponsor your doctor visit. You're going to sponsor your car. Now you're going to need a place to go get your medicine. Hey, it's us. So how does that kind of work out? And then also, what are you seeing in terms of, like, I guess I'm still trying to pick at it, like, why get into the medical side if it's such a loss leader at first, unless you really have the infrastructure financially, physically to prepare to wait? Again, in some cases, these operators in Texas, they've been operating for, what, maybe four, six years, some of them at most, maybe. And again, it's going to be another eight to 10 years, I think, before they see the return on that investment and opening up the doors for uh, a more influx of consumers. Because I think Texas's medical, last I saw quoted, was 50,000 patients. And that's distributed across three license holders. That's not a lot. That's actually a tremendous amount for three. The, the problem is that most of those licenses down there are in case you get pulled over with something that was not per. Yes. Purchase out there. That's my license. Those people okay. are not hitting those. Obviously, they're not strategically placed right. across the state. And it's a limp into the medical program down specifically in the state of Texas, which hopefully with this new round, they're going to expand that. And obviously, it's the chicken or the egg, too. Nobody goes to get a medical card if they can't buy something. So sure. it's you got to have both. In the state of Missouri, they allowed us to basically effectively sponsor. And and basically what we did is we reduced down the cost of getting your medical evaluation. And then when they sent in their $25, which is, is a very fair fee uh, relative to other states in the state of Missouri, when they got that card back, because we sponsored that, we also gave them 25 bucks in, in basically product in our store. So they basically instantly had loyalty points at equivalent of $25. So we covered it without covering because legally I was not allowed to pay their fee to yeah. the state. And then we just reduced down that evaluation by working with doctors, sending them a lot of people, doing the marketing for them. If you send a lot of people to the doctor, then all of a sudden, obviously you can reduce down that cost. So you can see places like up in West Virginia used to be $249 to get a medical card. That eliminates a lot of people, especially lower net worth people or economically challenged people. And so, the, and those are the ones that obviously my, my, my belief is everybody should be allowed to have the, the medicine that they want and shouldn't have to go through the extra step. If they allow telemed, you can greatly reduce down that, that structure, just like they, everybody did for COVID. Obviously telemed was out there and no, no nothing scary happened uh, from a pharmaceutical standpoint. So it should be allowed everywhere. But you look at like West Virginia, where we're, because they're starting to get more people that that cost is now coming down the $99. But I'm not allowed to, to sponsor or be anywhere associated with that equation. So it's a little bit different. So their medical program is building slower than having people like us that want to believe they shouldn't have to pay for an evaluation any more than they should if they're they're going into a doctor's office. 
and they shouldn't have to pay for a card when they don't have to do that for the opioids that are killing all these people across the country. So just it's state by state driven. We can sponsor. I just want to see those cost structures move down because the more you move to medical, we, we don't believe that we're converting a tremendous amount of people from being non-cannabis users to instantly being cannabis users. They're just buying black market and then they're coming into our market, generally speaking. So we used to always say there's a, a billion dollars that's being you know sold you know in the black market in the state of Missouri, completely untested fentanyl lace, all kinds of other bad things that go on in, in the black market. We're just converting those over. So I don't see the other people, the other operators of dispensaries in the state of Missouri as my competition. I compete against the the black market and converting people over to something that's, your water's tested for four things. I test for 54 different contaminants, something that's legal tested and obviously a much higher quality than a brick you get shipped across from Northern California, Mexico. And now, quite frankly, in my market, Oklahoma. Oklahoma. The, that Oklahoma is the biggest distributor of black market in the country right now. And it is absolutely shocking that uh, they screwed that program up so bad. When I heard that, I was like, you're kidding. What? The illicit is being flooded by Oklahoma. Okay, fine. I'll believe anything these days. Yeah. Uh, You said something that I wanted to follow up on because I just heard it. I was at the Cannabis Marketing Summit, which was in Denver a couple of weeks ago. And there was a data point being shared by New Frontier Data. And I'm going to butcher the explicits of the point. But essentially, if you have, let's say, a billion cannabis consumers, to your observation, you don't want to compete with the people who are already in the regulated market. You want to compete with the illicit market because apparently the illicit market is 2x the size of what is accounted for in the regulated market. And so that was the whole challenge or takeaway to the audience, it was, hey, stop focusing on your competition being Jim and Susie over there. Your competition is who's selling the cannabis out of the back door and how do you start converting those people? And so because you said it and that's on your radar and how you're operating things, how do you convert those people? Where do you find those people? And is it different in every state that you're operating in? Or is there a pretty similar I don't want to distill it down to like a customer profile card or something, but yeah. is there a typical look, feel, style of, of someone who is buying illicitly, who is very much capable of being a consumer, whether it's converting into medical or converting into rec, which is arguably probably easier to get someone to come into a rec market to make a transaction. But we know why they're buying illicitly. It's because the price is more economical. Yeah. And that was also part of the sentiment of the conversation. It's you're sitting there with your peers and everybody's like, yeah, that's great. I'd love to convert the illicit market, but I can't compete on price because of X, Y, or Z that the industry, my state, the federal government regulations are constraining us. And so it's a nice awareness to know, oh, there's all these people in the illicit market. And if I could just get them to know that I exist and my door is right here and I'm testing products, but it's obviously easier said than done when you're actually implementing it. And so I'm curious how you approach that, handle that, whether it's from a marketing perspective or just from a a business awareness perspective of how you identify those people and and try to convert them over. Yeah, I think the cost structure was lower. So obviously you're trying to close that gap where, you know, all of a sudden you're the black market product you've been getting. One, you have a lot more variety over in the regulated market. I got 350 SKUs in my store. And as we all know, the cannabis consumer is the most fickle person in 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 the world. Like, it, 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 I, I thought there'd be bigger brands and things like that marketing by now, and and it just hasn't happened. And so the fickle consumer comes in. You've got to have something new on your shelf literally every day uh, to keep them coming in there. And that's a way to convert the black market people is the the sheer variety. But you got to have the cost structure in line. Where um, I, I'm getting my fifteen dollar eighth over here. It's worth twenty five to me, but it's not worth thirty or whatever, whatever the math is, depending on that consumer. And obviously, if you look at the demographics of that, obviously the, the person that's more cost conscious, the you know economically challenged people are going more to the black market than spending that extra 10 bucks because they need groceries. It just makes logical sense on that. And then obviously, if you've got the resources, you want a higher end product, you want something testing higher, or you want that gummy that has the perfect texture or whatever the case is, instead of finding something from somebody else. So I think that keeping that economics, I would say from a regulatory standpoint, state by state, is the tax rates over in Illinois are crazy 
compared to Missouri because we did a ballot initiative and Illinois does their taxing program. Wild, crazy people. So now all of a sudden, people from Missouri that used to go over there and buy adult use, and those were some of the best stores in the country, are now, those bridges are going the opposite direction. Everybody's coming west because one, we have more variety, but two, the cost structure is significantly less because just the tax rates and the ability to operate are uh, are less in the state of Missouri. So having that happy medium of the regulatory body or, or how they write the legislation, if they overtax it, you're just promoting the black market. And But you want enough tax that people actually vote for it. And like the extra 3% in a town like Haiti that we operate in, in, right. in Missouri, like 3% of our number is their entire budget for the year. Yeah. So we, we are impacting these little communities specifically. So finding that tax rate, and then uh, we just now are launching launching television ads, which has been hard to do forever, of basically attacking the black market and basically stop the risk. In fact, I'll send you the commercial after this. But because you're seeing, and, and I started this, we had our, our GM up in, up in Beckley, uh, West Virginia came out. And long story short, they had a joint, they were passing around. There was five people in the room. Four of them ended up getting uh, Narcan to, uh, to save them. And one lady died oh my God. Uh, because it was laced with fentanyl and they bought in the black market and it's as scary as you can get. One, I don't even understand the math of why somebody would lace marijuana with fentanyl. That's uh, uh, absurd. But you're seeing a, a tremendous amount of, of stuff being tainted. And uh, so we're, we're attacking that, that black market to just educate people that there's a better way to, uh, to do this. And the cost structure is, is, is more in line with it's worth the extra five bucks or 10 bucks to know exactly what you're getting. Plus you get the variety and you know, the quality of the product is significantly better. Yeah. You said a couple of things. One, obviously using television, I know has been challenging in the past. I'm curious if you're leveraging it from local channels or if it's more syndicated channels, the behind that television, arguably, I know we're in the day and age of Netflix and Hulu, but there's still commercials. So maybe there's a split where some of those ads are being diverted to digital ads, but that's a great, I'm just trying to say, that's a great way to get in front of a mass general audience to say, hey, let's wave the flag. This is a real issue. Even just driving down one of our major roads here, very sad. Unfortunately, the fentanyl epidemic just in general being just exposed everywhere you can imagine is a billboard. It's not a cannabis billboard, but it's a fentanyl kills billboard. And it's a young teenager's face. And it's his mom I started a fund because it is a real issue. And so not to play on that, but to use it as an educational point to highlight the reality and say, hey, this is an issue you should be concerned about using television as the medium. I'm just curious how you approached television, understanding that it's a great medium, but knowing that it's been traditionally really difficult to use for cannabis marketing. I'm sure it's varying state to state. Some Every couple of weeks, I feel like I get a new alert. Oh, so-and-so news channel will talk about cannabis now and let you advertise. Oh, this radio station is going to allow this. How? And you just made a face and you're like, we're doing this, but it's been difficult. What's been difficult yeah. about it? And are they more receptive because it's addressing a bigger issue that is like the illicit market, fentanyl overdose, things like that? Or is it still just it's cannabis and you're trying to advertise? Yeah. Yeah. So, so a lot of them were blocked out of, so you got to go to the, the cable networks and those off networks. And, and really it's about, uh, showing the fact that we can actually start advertising and, and start to get our toe in the water of advertising and TV. I don't know the number of consumers that will probably get much better spread on social from it, but it's also tipping your toe into basically the television market to, to start clipping away. Just like we are not the NHL, the Mavericks are in, on basically the, professional team, but obviously it's not the NHL. NHL. We sponsor them. We can wrap green light around there and it's tipping your toe into each one of these as the cannabis industry continues to expand and be more mainstream. We see it as one of our jobs is to keep tipping that toe in there and keep extending and now billboards and Lamar and all these out front, all these billboard companies now obviously love taking our money. And I think the, the television market is going to, to to do that as well. And then obviously the social media is slowly coming on board and Twitter's half half pregnant or something into this equation, but the we're just slowly tipping our toe and, and trying to be more mainstream than we were before to educate people. And at least in that commercial relative to the number of deaths of fentanyl and opioids and all that other stuff that we're talking about in, in this specific commercial we're talking about, 
is dark and but it's to slap people in the face and and mm -hmm. realize that they're when they grab that they really have no idea what they're getting and it's like buying moonshine or something to that effect and or do you go grab your titos is the question so that's how we see it as a marketing standpoint we continue yeah. to press that envelope and and do some creative things to to try and open up that world and make cannabis much more mainstream yeah, I can certainly appreciate it as a marketer. It's been really crazy, unfortunate and unsettling just to see like going from having the flexibility to market with freedom to this industry where you're like, I have shown the same rights as everybody else to market my products and being confronted with all this censorship and just lack of platform. And so I just commend you for as dark as the topic might be, it obviously comes from a good place. And if it can also help bring awareness to just the mainstream nature of cannabis being here, then continue to push those boundaries, right? The other thing that you said that I thought was interesting that I wanted to peel back a little bit more, especially having so many stores in so many states, you're talking about newness. And this topic has come up a lot. Customers always want something new. Part of the question is, how frequently are you seeing your loyal customers? Are they in fact coming daily? Is it weekly? And when you have these people coming in this frequently, how do you manage the inventory to support that from a newness perspective? Are you really seeing new products every month? Is it weekly? Is it rotating? Newness, yes, could be new strains, right? New varieties. It could be new categories. So now I think like live rosin, resin added. I was just in Vegas and I didn't want to buy the distillate vape. I wanted to buy the premium vape because it was live rosin. And so you're yeah. getting some of that opportunity there. But I'm also curious, newness in new products categories beyond what we're traditionally seeing. So I'm just curious on a state-by-state -state basis, if you're seeing any Thing that is maybe atypical that you would see in a California or Colorado or Nevada market at this point, or if it's pretty par for the course. Everybody wants their edibles, they want their flower, they want their vape. And it's my job to make sure there's new strains coming in, this frequency, and that's the drumbeat. Yeah, the as far as people coming in, on average, it's twice a month. Spending 180 bucks a month is the is the over-under, generally speaking. Obviously, you have those people that come in every other day and know everybody in the building and they know my employees better than I know them and they know about their kids and everything yep. else in between. And so you have some of those we love. We have what's called the Founders Club, which is the first thousand people at each dispensary that are are in a group and we do special things for them. And they get, you know, customized grinders that they're getting out this week. Oh, and, I love that. And, and we and we keep them activated. And, and so you look at a thousand people they can really build your business. And we built those all during the medical program. Those Founders Club people are, are really the basis of a lot of our business. And now obviously we, we're going adult use in, in a bunch of these stores and that number is obviously going up, but we keep those thousand Founders Club and as one falls off, a new one comes on. Very but cool. the, so, so they've really built our business and those are, are, are a lot of our loyal consumers that were in the medical program before. So we take care of them going forward. And then the, as far as the SKU count and things like that, obviously, the vast majority of the sales are flower, vape, edibles. And so all the other stuff is a rounding error relative to the sales and just wearing my business hat, but you got to have the variety in there. So obviously you've got to have consistent strain variety in there as you know, roughly 55% of your business as you look at it. So the strain variety and, and new products and different testing and things along those lines has to be a part of it. And then we've got some staples that we've got to have because the certain number of consumers expect those to be there. And then from a vape standpoint, it's about having basically a brand variety more than anything. And obviously some new devices and things like that, but the bulk of that is, is disposables and still 510 thread cartridges, which is still work the, the best. And everybody has a 10 batteries in their drawer at home. And so like all these new cool devices and stuff, uh, they're, they're more novelty. Uh, they drive some business. They're cool. I like them better, but, uh, still at the end of the day, when you're picking up carts and you want to make sure that wherever you're going, you've got access to the 510 is still the dominant factor. And then what's inside is terpene profiles and live resin, et cetera. But, and then obviously edibles, you're seeing more brands building in edibles. We do a tremendous amount of green light. We only sell them in green light stores. So that's a big chunk of our edible business, but the wilds and the wannas and those smokies and those type of things that are in all the stores, you've got to carry them. And it's just a matter of how many SKUs of those you, you carry versus 
your own in-house brands and how you morph those. And then, you know, you want to help the little guy out too. So we do, which we're known for is our uh, marijuana farmer's market, actually in the image behind us, where we allow those vendors to come in and invented this in Las Vegas, where you walk through a concrete drug tunnel, you come out on the other side of shipping containers and trunks of Cadillacs and DJ booths and, and fun stuff. But the main thing is to connect that consumer with the brand. So right now, if you walk in, you talk to my bud tender, obviously my bud tender's job is to sell green light stuff first and, and basically making sure we're matching up with those consumer needs. But in the underground, as we call it, is the farmer's market is we're connecting that consumer directly with the brand. So the brand can sit there and tell them we grow in cocoa and we use this nutrient path or whatever the case is, whatever their sales pitch is, this is our vape pen. And this is why you should be using this only in whatever their sales pitch is. But basically taking that bud tender out of the middle of that marketing equation to allow them to get immediate feedback. Hey, yeah, I tried this strain, but it didn't do this. And or your vape pen broke or whatever your issue is, you get to connect directly with that consumer in our farmer's market. Because I thought my, my thesis is over time, the brands will be the big thing versus today. It's whoever has the best product and or the new shiny penny. And so over time, I think you'll see more of the, the Tito's version of our industry but it just hasn't developed, quite frankly, as, as fast as I thought it would. No, great insight. I think it is an interesting challenge our industry has where, yes, you have this variety, but then at the same time, there's only so much variety that can be done. And so it's this almost perception of newness. I even, this was from an episode, maybe probably like a year ago, the guy, and I'm sure you can attest and understand this. He's, oh, sometimes it's even the same product. You just put a different label on it. And all of a sudden the consumer is, oh, I want that new thing just because it looks new. And so trying to reconcile that in our industry and make space for it. And to your point, observing that, I guess there are some large brands, but to the status of, and Tito's is great. I might just be biased because I'm in Austin, but I love their marketing when I'm in Austin, they say Austin's vodka. When I go outside of Austin, it's Texas's vodka. When I go national, it's America's vodka. I'm like, this makes sense. I understand this. And I, I am too also waiting for that. And I think you're seeing big brands like Cookies, unfortunately, fall on themselves right now with all the issues that they're experiencing. And so I, I don't know where things are going to net. I also remember listening to one of the WANA execs at a conference probably a year ago as well saying, and recognizing at the size that they're at saying, we have so much to learn. We have so much to grow. Like we haven't made it. And so I think that kind of set me back in my chair a little bit of just acknowledging as much as the industry is establishing itself and there are recognized brands, we have to just be prepared because every state, every month, every new legislation, regulatory change is adding more complexity to that. And so it's made the best business brands win, but you're obviously building a really great runway and reputation. And so I will end our podcast by asking you, which you've already shared so much great insight, but what's next for Greenlight? You've mentioned some of the states licensing that you're waiting to come through. Maybe that's what comes to mind. Maybe there's some other products or other things um, you're working on, but like, let's look to the future. What's positive? What's happening in your ecosystem? And where are you most excited to head next? Yeah, we're we're in a, a real merger and acquisition process right now. We have cash on the balance sheet and uh, and are good operators. And there is a lot of blood in the water right now of, of people that are abandoning markets and trying to right size their business and things like that. We're in the opposite mode of we're hitting the gas pedal right now. And those are unique opportunities that I think go away as soon as we get safe banking or something from a federal standpoint. We're gas pedal down on expansion. Obviously, we'd love to win in Texas, Alabama, Florida. We have lobbying efforts in North Carolina and my my state next door here in, in Kansas. And and those are laying the groundwork for the years ahead. But and then we're focused on we're a debt-free company doing dividends, which is different in our industry than than other guys. Is we want to be frugal and prudent with our our capital. We like to build things uh cheaper than everybody else, get up and operating and be able to, you know, sustain to your point in, in a medical market where we're serving those consumers for a long period of time and and not hemorrhaging, hemorrhaging any cash in the market. So even our medical markets, we're starting to see some black numbers, but we are uh, gas pedal down on acquisitions and, and, and going out and expanding our footprint. And this time next year will be, I, I would imagine well over a thousand people working in our business. And so we're going to keep expanding as others are contracting. We're in a unique 
We don't have a billion dollars of debt on our balance sheet like a bunch of the big MSOs. And so we're going to go go expand and, and do it with cash flow instead of, instead of some creative debt funding that all of us in our industry have to do to, to actually raise equity or capital with the way the markets are so screwed up. That wraps up another fantastic episode of the To Be Blunt podcast. And I hope you've enjoyed the enlightening discussions and insights we've shared today. But the conversation doesn't end here. I invite you to join my vibrant community of cannabis enthusiasts, experts, and advocates. So what can you do to stay connected and get involved? First, make sure you subscribe to To Be Blunt on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. And if you've enjoyed our show, I would truly appreciate it if you could take a moment to rate and review it. Your feedback helps the podcast grow and reach more listeners like you. Next, head over to our website, www.tobebluntpod.com, where you'll find a wealth of resources, exclusive content, and our show archives. While you're there, be sure to sign up for our newsletter to stay up to date on the latest cannabis news and events. Lastly, I would love to hear your thoughts, questions, and episode suggestions. Connect with me and the show on social media. Find us on Instagram at tobebluntpod and at theshadedtorabi. Let's keep the conversation going and work together to dispel myths, break stigmas, and celebrate the incredible world of cannabis. Thanks again for tuning in. And until next time, stay curious, stay informed, and stay blunt. Love this episode of To Be Blunt? Be sure to visit theshadatarabi.com slash to be blunt for more ways to connect. New episodes come out on Mondays. And for more behind the scenes, follow along on Instagram at theshadatarabi.com.